The first day was like really overwhelming. Excitement. Can't remember. <laughs> it was amazing. I loved it. A new life was waiting for me, basically. Mostly frantic. Anxiety inducing. It was torturous. Oh, it was a mess. Like it was, it was such a disaster. I haven't even started paying off my student loans. Don't know if you're going to be able to eat next semester. You're at the mercy of other people. Sorry, I'm just so jaded and cynical. Well, one day you think you can conquer the world and the other days you're not worth it. This is Just As It Sounds, featuring academics telling their stories just as they sound. Welcome to Just As It Sounds. Today we are talking with Dr. Simone Kolish about the experience of being a part of the LGBTQ community while going through the academic system, from being an undergrad to a graduate student all the way to becoming a faculty member. Before you listen, it is important to note that this episode contains stories and conversations about sexual assault. We believe it's important for these stories to be told, and we are grateful that Dr. Kolish was able to speak with us today about this topic. With that, here's the episode. Welcome, Simone. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Um, so uh, we will be talking about um, the experiences um, as a like a PhD student or as a PhD faculty uh, from a LGBTQ community. Um, and like you no, know, just like you no, know, before you know, getting into that, uh, like you know, this like you no know, discussion. Uh, could you please like you no know, introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, listeners. <laughs> uh, my name is Simone Kolish, and I'm a recent uh, graduate uh, of the sociology PhD pro- program at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and I now live in Maryland, where I um, am an assistant professor of sociology on the tenure track at Hood College. All right, then. So let's start uh, with the first question. Uh, is there discrimination against the LGBTQ community in academia? Great, that's a that's a lot. And let me so then I I was thinking about this a little bit. Um, so each of us in the LGBTQ community makes a decision about how out uh, and proud to be in the classroom, um, and w- so I know that a lot of my colleagues, you know, uh, make choices based on what they thought would be retaliation or perhaps losing their work. And and I chose to be out in the classroom and to be that gay professor, that very visible professor who students can go to. And therefore over the last 10 years took on a lot of their trauma and it resonated with mine. And so that's kind of what I first think about. Then of course I think about being a PhD student and LGBTQ in terms of the coursework that we conduct and like what we are taught and whether there's representation amongst our faculty and you know there isn't much of any of that because sexuality and gender um as far as groups that are marginalized you know aren't really centered in any program and you'd think sociology would be the place for that but it wasn't so like i had to develop a a graduate course for sociology of sexuality and it was taught by a faculty member who's queer and that was good but i don't think it gets taught as required and I, i don't think he's taught it for a very long time um and so it didn't give us a chance to see ourselves as scholars of gender and sexuality and to see ourselves reflected in our faculty. 
Um, and then I'm thinking about our interactions with our peers, right, and other graduate students. And of course, everyone is uninformed about their being cisgender and their being straight and what kind of privileges they carry. Um, and a little bit later, you know, when when we started, um, and this was a huge effort across the nation, sociologists for transgender justice, uh, sociologists for trans justice, check out our website. Uh, when we started that uh, organization, which is a kind of aligned or adjacent to the American Sociological Association, it's entirely based on voluntary effort and we never got you know, any money or any funding. And we put together a national survey, the first of its kind, to take a look at how transgender and non-binary and intersex graduate students across all fields, uh, you know, experience their graduate education. And so I, I think we received about 700 responses, but about 500 plus usable. And we're just now starting to take a look at the data overall and, and publish it and try to make infographics. And, you know, the pandemic really interrupted that process because we were going to present our findings to, to ASA. Um, and so, but what I can tell you from looking over our data is that we lost and continue to lose a lot of transgender, non-binary and intersex graduate students um, because they drop out. And so what I try to think about when I think about harassment and hostile environments and violence and microaggressions is the this incredible potential of thought, of research, of just contribution that we lose and never know about because a lot of people, um, particularly transgender people, um, experience hostility to such an extent that they either like have to switch committees or departments or topics or, or drop out and then come back or quit, you know, because they just wanted their pronouns respected. Yeah, it sounds like a very important research, Simone. Uh, but the, you know, did you get the chance uh, also to collect some information about the reasons of like you know, dropping out? We uh, probed their experiences with their students, their peers, their faculty, staff, and the general graduate environment. We broke down the differences by social sciences versus the hard sciences, big quotation marks, okay, uh, and the humanities and whatever. And, you know, as expected, uh, a lot of folks, we just um, put out, uh, uh, you know, an article for publication about this. A lot of folks in the hard sciences, you know, talked a little bit more uh, about, it being more difficult, you know, because it's not even on the radar, you know, for a biology PhD or whatever, like at least you could have a sociologist who studies trans issues, you know, be the token in the department to, to correct people. But if you're a biologist in a lab and you're LGBTQ and everyone else is not, you know, there isn't really an avenue for that. And we, we, you know, no, we had people answer the survey as well as provide answers to an, an, a bunch of open-ended questions. And so they wrote in um, really disturbing 
things, you know, about what they've experienced um, from sexual harassment to being misgendered to being mistreated by staff, as well as medical and mental health professionals. Um, They would talk about conferences, right, which is another way that people get together and network, but we take for granted, you know, that that process. And so they would talk about how if there weren't bathrooms that they felt safe in, they would have to hold in their, their pee and their, you know, their, and wouldn't eat so that they didn't have to go to the bathroom, you know, just things that uh, aren't on people's radar, I think. Um, And so it impacted them not, not being where networking is taking place. They talked about advisors specifically saying not to research trans issues and not to publish in trans, you know, if uh, uh, however few there are in, in, in sort of trans adjacent publications that, that this will kill their job you know, opportunities and, and chances on the job market. You know, people talked about having difficulty transitioning and, 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 and there's a lot of different ways to, to, you know, transition and be more authentically yourself. So from social to legal to medical transition, people mentioned that they were holding off on transitioning until the end of their PhD, if ever. I mean, and if you think about how long we spend in a PhD, that could be a good decade of your life or more to not feel yourself and to not you know do what you need to do and of course it shouldn't matter whatsoever and you should transition when you feel like it right and and so that was really heartbreaking I think uh at the beginning of um this uh, conversation uh you mentioned something very important is like you know how much actually we uh, take this privilege for granted as cisgender people as right i mean uh, heterosexual like you know straight people uh so then in that regard if can you elaborate on the structural inequalities uh that a phd student or phd faculty from lgbtq community have to face um and are facing right well i mean in general i think it starts before the phd and you know educating LGBTQ undergraduates for this long and knowing what they're going through, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it makes sense that um, if they didn't experience a very warm and welcoming environment at the undergrad level that they're gonna apply or they're not gonna try or they're not gonna talk about LGBTQ topics, you know, on their um, graduate school statement. And once they're there, they may not wanna be the only person that everyone um, tokenizes. And again, at the at talking about the structural level, like there's going to be, if there, if, if the program uh, is making any steps whatsoever, they're always going to exploit marginalized people for, you know, uh, their labor, right? So if, um, if I'm visible and I'm out in the department, then they're going to expect me to educate others. And, or if I, if I want to run an LGBTQ club, then I have to do it and not anybody else. So the, so the solution to structural inequality gets placed as a burden on the shoulders of people who are impacted by it the most. But if we don't do the the work as members of the LGBTQ community, leaving it up to cisgender and straight people is going to result in a dumpster fire because folks aren't educated. So it's sort of like 
um, if you if you don't have professors or required courses on gender and sexuality, then you're not going to train PhD students who are able to teach those courses to undergrads. And when they go on the job market, you know, like they're they're not going to be able to um, become the kind of faculty who can do this work. And then LGBTQ PhD students are going to be structurally impacted on the job market. And I'll give you an example for myself. There were entire swaths of the United States unavailable to me for consideration that I could have applied to had it not been in like, whatever. I'm not gonna mention states because people always get upset. There are queer people everywhere. It's just not easy. And of course, there are LGBTQ faculty everywhere, but in some colleges, they have to be um, acting straight or never come out as trans or, or whatever, because their very being there is against the college's mission, which is homophobic and transphobic, but it happens all the time. And the other thing was when you're on the job market, well, there's two more things uh, and you're, and you're looking for locations, you know, it's not just that you're going to have a job there. You have to live there. So you have to know if the area is like homophobic or there's no LGBTQ center, or if everyone around is white, because like, I wasn't going to take my interracial family, my mixed immigrant status family, any place where there wasn't another LGBTQ person in sight, you know, or where the political landscape from the governor to state uh, representatives to whatever specifically and consistently voted against my well-being and the well-being of my family. So I would, I would really, you know, look at all the uh, all the job openings out there. And of course, right now there are very few because the pandemic ruined whatever mess there was already with all of this. But whenever, whenever I was applying, and there were some jobs, I had to let go a whole bunch because I couldn't move to that place. Um, so there's that. There's also obviously the issue of graduate students uh, looking to work and live somewhere where the their healthcare needs can be met. You know, like where they can have insurance. You know, to to get whatever healthcare they may may want. Right, like people can't apply to places where they won't be able to transition medically or have no access to hormones. Um, and they really, you know, they can't, like, it's not even that, it's also reproductive justice that that we considered, like, we can't go to a state where abortion access is being destroyed by the second. How has it been the climate, like, now when you were a PhD student? I mean, I have to say that I'm very particular. And people will say that about me, that I'm brave or that I'm brazen or that I'm uh, just outrageous, you know, and, and they would be right because academia really kills the magic <laughs> in all of us. And I, I came in a little bit older and had under my belt work experience, a couple of kids, a couple of marriages. So already dispensed with a lot of these respectability politics and knew who I was as a person. And this is key because if you are now in graduate school and you're 
feeling like you're being destroyed or that failure is inevitable, please remember that this is by design and that if you don't have like a very good sense of who you are, then academia will swoop in and fill that uh, void and it'll lead to a lot of unhappiness in, in that sense. But, but when I was a PhD student, um, you know, you know, I was very out there. It wasn't just that I was LGBTQ, it was that I was a mother too. And, and that, that presence, my pregnant body, my breastfeeding body, the babies crawling everywhere interrupted these people's idea of like what a place of learning should be. And I, and I felt like, you know, there are no windows at the graduate center. And th this adds to kind of this feeling that we're in the 18th century, but, but it was also ideologically that way because there was no breath of fresh air, you know, in terms of uh, leftist politics, even though it's a pretty leftist place, let's say, uh, when it comes to like labor movements, right? And there are a lot of Marxists running around there wearing flannel from Uniqlo, but they're not exactly supportive of a breastfeeding body. And of course, we already know, since folks have written about this for decades, that not having mothers or people with children in organizing spaces ensures that you don't have a large component of the working class <laughs> as part of your politic, okay? And so I was involved in a lot of governance and uh, whether I wanted to or not, I was involved in a lot of adjunct organizing and labor organizing. And it was really important for me to have my children there and to be pregnant and be breastfeeding in those spaces. And so that also rubbed people the wrong way. And so, and the reason I mentioned both being you know, very out and proud and a mother is because if either of these things rub you the wrong way, putting them together truly confuses people to no end. Like, how can I be such a brazen lesbian and then so old school in terms of wanting to breastfeed my baby? You know, like, how dare I be not just a mother, but a gay one? And then on top of that, talk about how I'm not a woman and you need to use they, they, pro them pronouns for me. It's like too much for intellectuals to tolerate you know it's as if their tolerance has a limit you know and as I tell my students when they experience a lot of new things in my classes that your heart does not have a limit and your brain doesn't have a limit either you know if you can learn all the 43,000 Pokemon evolutions and whatnot you can learn what LGBTQIA and all that stands for and use they them pronouns for your professor because you're capable of that you know so so you know, it wasn't just that. Of course, I brought whenever I was partnered with somebody, they were part of my life there, you know, and so was our public displays of affection. You know, I'm a big believer in in uh, talking about how space and 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 really material uh, structures contribute to inequality and, and, and how important it is to be inside certain physical spaces and be yourself. So like when these hostile climates want you to quit and we quit, 
I support you, but it's a huge loss, you know, because you do belong in graduate school and it is your space, even when it doesn't feel like it, um, because the professoriate needs to change. There are far too many white men still shuffling around from the last century, okay? Like, it needs to reflect society, and it doesn't. And so I wanted my partners there. You know, I'm a polyamorous person. So over the years, I've, I've had a lot of partners. So imagine this mother who is a lesbian, who's an agender person, who then has partners, you know, who don't always look uh, like the same person, you know, just existing in that space. Everybody was upset about something. So, Simone, as far as, like, you know, you use those words, like, you know, you said that, you were out there and then, you know, you just like, you no know, chose this uh, intentionally. You just yeah. like, know, right. I mean, it was, um, I don't know, maybe it's a coping mechanism. Maybe it's like no way of like not existing. Right. I mean, as you like, no said, uh, but you know, we all have different, I think maybe ways of being right. I mean, with our identities, you think that uh, it would, it can be like, you no know, more challenging and difficult for a PhD student, like, you know, who is not right who has a different personality and then maybe right i mean do you think that it would be it would be more brutal for them right i mean yeah look you know it's not a coping mechanism you know it's it's the way i choose to fashion my life but it's because of trauma that i do so so Uh, it's connected, I guess. Um, and plenty of other people live a completely different experience by hiding, by um, not being comfortable, by not being safe, uh, and having to talk to me in secret uh, about things like, not even just like the usual things people talk to me in secret, which is shockingly just about how to become a mother in the academy. <laughs> so aside from that, people would talk to me in secret about Uh, how to be a queer person in a queer couple, you know, wanting to do things like get pregnant, you know, during grad school and uh, do IVF because I did that as well. Um, so there were a lot of secret conversations on that. So I know that there are people out there, uh, as I say, we're all around you, who, uh, who experience um, a level of erasure you know, for a variety of reasons, not just their sexuality and their gender, their race or immigrant status, disability. I mean, academia is like this perfect clusterfuck of, of isms, you know, that that um, makes people feel erased. So I know professors, and I call them professors, but they're graduate students. So I know adjunct professors who uh, would never come out to their students. And I know that that decision isn't easy and I will never tell them how to be <laughs> and it, and so I go with what people feel is the best path forward for them but I but I do want to push a little bit some of the people listening because if it's all the same <laughs> and there's all of this pain then you might as well um, you know think about what about your yourself you can you know be more open about and I know that that's really hard um but you you might as well be happy <laughs> and and yourself you know and and so I I just can't believe and I am so full of rage about having entire decades of your life 
um, be someplace where you change, and this is a true story, the pronouns of your partner to fit a heteronormative structure where you say, oh, I don't mention my wife. I say my husband. And I had to be like, you what? And they're like, well, you know, we live insert state here. And so it's important that we watch ourselves, you know, or someone said, you know, one of the ways I knew to be quiet was during a job interview, they took me to church. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's illegal. But in any case, that's the culture of that department. And they were like, and once they did, and like, I heard the the sermon there, like, I knew I couldn't be openly myself. And like, Sure, those people are going to make whatever decisions to manage and navigate their environment, but I'm not okay with the fact that they have to do so. I think, Simo, you are bringing up something like no, very interesting here because I wanted to also like no, talk about this discourse, increasing discourse on inclusion, diversity, right? I mean, equity on campuses. And like, you know, you are pointing at this incredible paradox here and an irony, right? I mean, on the one hand, right? I mean, we have to erase who we are, right? And we have to become invisible um, in order to graduate, in order to get some job, in order to, right, and maintain that job in this like, you know, academic pl- platform where you think you would say that, okay, this is like you know, a progressive, a liberal environment, right? Where I will be accepted, where it is not the case as you just like, you know, right? I mean, mention. And on the other hand, there is this like, you know, incredible, right? I mean, discourse um, circulating in all, all, in all sort of like in you know, campuses, diversity, inclusion, and equity, right? I mean, what do you think about this? And um, because I think this is something that we have to talk about it, right? You have to have people expert at the matters at hand, and you have to have people remunerated for their labor if you're relying on your own faculty or graduate students. Because a lot of the time in my graduate student experience, we were tapped into to be on committees for things like Uh, accessibility and accommodation. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to get into it, but like, shouldn't somebody adult be doing this instead? Because we were supposed to write our dissertation. We weren't supposed to march, strike, be the vanguard of all the revolutions, you know, talk about mothers and be the, like, again, how are you supposed to get any work done if you're out there organizing people and you also work like, I always worked a 4-4 course load as an adjunct. So it's impossible. So when people are like, how do you do it all? I don't. I don't do it all. (laughs) I am angry. I'm upset. I'm traumatized. So are a lot of us. And I I have scheduled nervous breakdowns. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) And I had those scheduled nervous breakdowns in grad school. I mean, I feel like people saw me cry on top of the printer a lot because what would be the last straw often in response to inequity was that there was never any paper. 
that there was never any paper staples, basic supplies. You know, it just drove me insane because it wasn't just paper, obviously. It was the lack of care. Uh, then, Simon, do you think that the diversity, inclusion and equity discourse has improved the, the policies that are supposed to protect the LGBTQ community on campus? And has it increased their visibility? I don't think I've seen as many policy changes as people say there are. I, I, I do think there are certain, you know, trends that these institutions have to begrudgingly get behind. But actually, as strides are made, there are a lot of um, sort of backwards movements um, because there isn't even something I can speak about LGBTQ people without speaking about just basic rape culture and how institutions fail to support people who've been violated in that way, whether by peers or by faculty. And I, and I graduated in 2019. So all of this is, is fresh in my mind as are the, the secret meetings we had to have at the American Sociological Association where we tried, let me just tell you, remember how I said we formed a sociologist for trans justice and successfully? We tried to form a sociologists against sexual violence and were defeated almost from the very beginning because when we held our first secret meeting for sociologists to come and talk about how they've been sexually violated in the academy, there were people there who were moles or spies or whatever, who then prevented us from being able to start a list of people with their names and their emails by outing those people on those same Sojab rumor boards the very morning after that there were sociologists, of course there are white men, what else could it be, whose entire purpose that Saturday night at eight o'clock after the conference was done was to go to, to, to a meeting where people cried and talked about being raped and experiencing all sorts of violence and wrote down their names and exposed them, okay? We couldn't even get a listserv going because of how vile that was. But let me also tell you that there were a couple of people from the ASA administration, so to speak, there to listen, right? And to, to hear our concerns or whatever. And they were giving an award to that Michael Kimmel guy who's like uh, been outed as a rapist of like um, uh, uh, many times. <laughs> um, of like 30 years plus, let's say, and he was a huge prominent figure in masculinity studies and in gender studies of all things. And of course, you know, it's this perfect uh, irony. Um, they were giving him an award for, for uh, advancing women's studies or scholarship on women or whatever i mean it was like a parks and rec episode literally right like when i don't know if you watch parks and rec when the yeah. guy got the woman of the year award i mean it was literally like that in real life and so when the administration was there and they listened to all of us cry and talk about being violated and whatever um you know 
they were and and the and heard our outrage about them giving that award to him it's been since revoked but i swear it took three years and a whole bunch of people resigning in 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 fury but in any case they were like i remember one of them saying explicitly um we've heard you we 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 hear your pain we just don't know what there is to do and and the whole room was silent. And I, of course, could not hold my tongue because I never could. I don't know why. And I was like, um, well, there are a lot of things you can do. And you could start by removing the award and rescinding it because that's in your power. All of this that you see here is uh, is uh, is made up. It's made up of us. And, and we can unmake it. We can do anything we want. You're saying there's nothing you can do. There is everything you can do because you're the ones in charge. And I later was told that my tone prevented them from returning because if they wanted them to be our allies, that's not how they want to be spoken to. And this kind of pattern exists throughout this sort of backlash, this kind of like, oh, look, we came to your little peasants meeting and we sat here and listened to you. And that should be enough for us to get all the awards, you know, is really indicative violence right mm -hmm. so you know in in a lot of colleges we as faculty have to report certain instances right of like violation or or rape right we have to be um i forget what the phrase is um but it basically requires us to do to do so. And I I will never do it. Uh, and I don't work at a school like that, but I will never do it because I know that as a scholar of violence, um, going through that process, whether you're LGBTQ and you want to talk about homophobia, transphobia, acephobia, whatever, or you want to talk about being sexually violated or not, quite often it's the same people, you know, you're going to be re-traumatized by a system where they're going to put you in a room with your rapist or somebody and you're you're going to experience what so many people in that room talked about. And so uh, I don't know about the DEI initiatives, but I know that institutions uh, shut down any and all conversations when it comes to, you know, experiences of violence. I know because so many students have come to me across so many institutions that professors treated them inappropriately. And I remember specifically, um, there was a student crying in the bathroom and she talked about how she went to her professor later at night and in his office and he tried to touch her and whatever. And she was still bawling kind of about it really emotional. And I was of course full of rage because I'm justified. And, uh, you know, being someone who's in trauma informed and, and, and has a social justice background, my job, uh, which is something that a lot of people misunderstand, I think, in their good intentions, with their good intentions, is uh, is not to go to the system. My job and my um, responsibility is to the victim, first and foremost. And so I said, do you want me to do something in my position as faculty? Do you want me to do X, Y, and Z in my position as faculty? Here's the things that we can do. And she, you know, like so often happens in a sense, tied my hands, you know, and said no and no and no. And I'm not going to go above a student or a victim and try to hold whomever accountable because that happens all the time. And that's not right. You know, we don't allow students 
students agency. We don't allow our peers agency, whatever. So I don't even remember where we started talking about this, but I'm just thinking that if we're not even able to address the fact that we're being raped or sexually assaulted at conferences and elsewhere, we're really not going to be able to talk about how transgender people experience violence or how LGBTQ people experience violence or how race and class and all that features into it because we're still stuck on Title IX not working. You know, there are so many college students right now going to classes with their rapists, you know, um, enough that there was that performance art piece with the mattress by the Columbia undergraduate student, you know, and she graduated carrying that mattress or something, whatever, right? Because the institution ignores it. So I can't even think about uh, visibility or whatever, because I think much of what we're dealing with are things that we haven't addressed from the many decades before, like, yeah, of course. Um, uh, why do you think it is important uh, to add in the syllabus text or materials that LGBTQ students can relate with? Why well, is it important? Um, because they may not have come across anything like that before or since, you know, it may be the only class in which they have a professor who doesn't um, make a, a token out of those readings, but it's just part of, it, of of your syllabus. So the other thing not to do is to make a unit on LGBTQ identities. It just needs to be something that is taught throughout, you know, instead of just um you know, marginalizing it to one week or whatever. And and let me tell you, when I have the students who are LGBTQ write uh, like a speech they gave or a TED talk that I encourage them to do, and, and the other students read those transcripts, there is nothing like students relating to what another student has said, because you are definitely not living their life. But a student who was just there at the same institution talking about what it was like to be transgender, I'm thinking of one reading in particular now Uh, and and having other, you know, LGBTQ kids read his work is always something they mention was the most one of the best things they read, you know, because they just relate to it so much, you know. Um, and, And so I know that that works and I know that that's successful. The other thing is when they read like little blog posts that I that I write uh, or used to write about like being a mom and being a gender or like whatever they they're very personal and so when you you know reveal a lot of yourself it really works to help marginalized students and then there is the backlash from the non-marginalized students about how it's inappropriate that you reveal so much of yourself mm-hmm. so it is a paradox or like a fine line that we kind of walk and I made a decision long ago to to center marginalized students uh, and 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 not be one of those professors who pretends that they can somehow be there for everyone and that the classroom is a place where everyone should feel comfortable in equal measure. Like, I disagree. I don't think a white supremacist student should feel comfortable in my classroom, period. I'm going to die on that hill. And I and I do think that marginalized students should be given more voice or be listened to or have their experiences reflected because it may be the only class where they'll experience that. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Simone's work, you can follow them on Twitter. Their handle is at Simone Kolish. Thank you for listening to Just As It Sounds. 
Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have any questions or ideas for the show, please email us at contactjustasitsounds at gmail.com.